abounding in love and kindness. Lord, we are grateful for that um, at all times, but most of all because we know that we don't deserve your grace because we're a sinful people, and yet you um, love us and give us grace nonetheless. Lord, help us today to learn from your word um, a bit about uh, who we are as men and women that are, in fact, sinful. Help us to see clearly um, the deceitfulness of our hearts um, and allow um, your spirit um, to teach us uh, through your word and that we would be edified and changed by it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Russ Dar has handouts. If anyone needs one, wave your hand at him. And um, we'll begin. Some 30 years ago, or more than 30 years ago now, a largely unknown conservative rabbi from suburban Boston wrote a very small book that many of you may have heard of. The title of this book has perhaps become somewhat um, kind of worked its way into the modern lexicon of how to deal with the problem of evil. And the title of his book was When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Some of you are familiar with that book perhaps. Um, I don't recommend that you read it. I think pound for pound it's one of the largest purveyors of theological mischief that's been published in the modern era. Um, obviously his premise is flawed. He writes from the perspective that people are inherently good, um, which we have to reject because that's not what Scripture says about people. Um, and the conclusions that he draws, I dare say, are blasphemous. Now, what we're not going to do these three weeks is talk about his book point by point. We're not doing that at all. Rather, I just took that little title of his book that's kind of familiar in some ways, and I think we need to turn that on its head and look at it from the other perspective, which is what Scripture says, and consider the topic, well, why is it or how is it that good things happen to bad people? Um, that's what you see on the top of your notes. So for three weeks, we'll be discussing this. Um, first of all, this week, we're going to look at uh, what is a bad person. We're going to talk about sin this week. Um, and as I was preparing these uh, lessons, my wife reminded me, well, Nathan, last time you taught Sunday school, you talked a lot about sin. It was the mortification of sin. And you're going to do it again this week? And I said, well, I guess if you're going to teach, you might as well teach something that you're familiar with. Um, not to make light of sin in any way. But um, so today we're talking about sin. Next week we'll talk about what is a good thing. I just will talk about God's grace. And then the third week, we will talk about, based on the fact that people are sinful and God is gracious, well, how do we live in light of that? Or perhaps if someone were just very focused on application, what should we do? And we'll talk about that on week three. So, in order to think about this clearly, I think we need to have a good definition of sin um, to really understand what it is we're talking about. And, of course, there have been many ways to describe sin throughout the history of uh, the church for sure, and there have been many people that have attempted to describe or de define sin in different ways. And to kind of get our brains going here, I want to give you um, six different definitions of sin. Um, you don't have to write all these down. I guess if you want to, you can, but I'm not going to say them just once. Um, and there's something missing from each of these definitions of sin. Not that they're not good and can't be useful in some way, but I want you to listen and see is there something lacking from each of these? And then I'll ask you after I've read these if you picked up on something that was lacking here. Um, first of all, Augustine has said that sin is looking for pleasure, beauty, or truth 
not in God, but in yourself. Martin Luther has said, sin is essentially a departure from God. And then he adds, the truth is, I am all sin. Jonathan Edwards said, sin is the ruin and the misery of the soul. Spurgeon has said, sin is a deliberate treason against the majesty of God, an assault upon his crown, and an insult offered to his throne. John MacArthur has simply said, sin is a failure to act in faith. And our friend Wayne Mack, who was here with us not too long ago from South Africa, has said, sin is a failure to pay God what we owe him. Now those can all be useful definitions and help us understand a bit about sin, but is there something that was missing in each of those? Anything You'll see a hint, kind of the first thing written on the top of the notes there below that blank line. What do you see there? God's law. Thank you, Russ. In order to really have a good definition of sin, we really have to define it in relation to God's law. Because if it were not for the law, we wouldn't even know what sin is, right? And so here's the first blank there. If you want to write this down. This is, I think, a pretty good comprehensive definition. This was from Wayne Grudem. He says, sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. I'll say that again. Sin is any failure to conform to God's moral law in act, attitude, or nature. And we'll break this down a little bit. Because if we're going to define sin in terms of the law, I think it's also helpful to think about the law kind of generally and then kind of focus down at a, a bit more specific about what the law really requires of us. Um, first of all, we can say that we can kind of break the law into maybe three different parts or from broad categories narrowing it down. First of all, we can say that there's the manifold law of God, right? This is what's all of the commandments in Scripture. In the Old Testament, there's more than 600 commands given in the word of the way people are expected to live their lives. That's the manifold law of God. From that, you can come down a little bit, or a lot, from 600 down to 10, the tenfold law of God, the Ten Commandments, right? Distilled into ten rules or regulations of the way people should live their lives. And then from ten, you can come down to two, and the twofold law. This is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 22. He says, remember the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, and your mind. And then the second part is to love your neighbor as yourself. So from very broadly all the way down to just two things that Jesus said, that all of the law and the prophets depend on these two things. And when, you, when we look at what the twofold law is, what is the actual command that Jesus gave there? In relation to God and others, what did he say we should do? Love. Okay, love. That is the distillation of everything that's represented in the law, is to love God and love others. Now, thinking about the way that sin has affected us, we cannot simply say that our failure um, in conforming to the law, we can't say that our failure is simply a failure to love. 
it's not just that we don't love God in and of ourselves, and that we don't just not love other people, but you have to say it's, there's more of an active opposition, in fact, to God. It's not just failing to love. Really, you can say it's actually much more than that. It's actually a hatred for the unredeemed. They certainly don't love God, but it's far worse than that. They actually hate Him. That's what it is to fail to conform to God's law. Failure to love, but an active opposition to him. Because when Paul was writing in Romans chapter 1, describing an unbeliever, in verse 30 he called them haters of God. Right? It's not just a lack of love, but it's an active hate. And it is that hatred of God that's within people's hearts that gives rise to the sinful acts and attitudes. In the actions that are sinful and the attitudes that are sinful, they're not really the real problem, are they? They're really the symptom of a larger problem. And that's what we're trying to consider today, um, this larger, very large problem of sin. Um, and it's interesting, though, that we probably know lots of people, friends or neighbors or family, um, would hold to the wrong idea that people are inherently good, that they're not inherently sinful. Um, just what what is it that would be attractive about that? Why would someone want to believe that people are inherently good? What do you think? Putting their hope in people. Okay. What else? You don't have to worry about God then, as in there's no, there's no threat of punishment, right? People are inherently good, right? Well, the, the fact is, if we hold, to, and I know that probably most of us in this room don't hold to this idea, but if, if the idea that people are inherently good, if that's what someone is ascribing to, then really the real problem with that is that it undercuts the entire message of the gospel, right? Because the gospel is only good news for sinners, right? The gospel has nothing to offer people that are righteous on their own, right? And I think that's why it's so important for us to um, consider these things. I mean, a lot of this this week is, is perhaps doctrine and theology that we're familiar with. But I think we need to be reminded of it. So to go to the scriptures here, we're going to go to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to go all the way back to the fall to see the way that sin entered in to mankind and how it affected Adam and Eve. So Genesis chapter 3, and I'll just read verses 1 through 7. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You surely shall not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes 
and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit, and she ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. So from these, this passage here that we're very familiar with, I want us to look at three ways that sin affected Adam and Eve. Um, first of all, we have three blanks here. Three ways that sin struck at Adam and Eve and it strikes at all of us. First of all, sin struck at their basis for knowledge. Their basis for knowledge because it gave a different answer to the question, what is true? Okay? Because God had given Adam and Eve a very important bit of truth. We read in chapter 2 that he said, From the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, what did he say? You shall surely die. Right? That was a very important thing for Adam and Eve to know. And yet the serpent comes and he says to Eve, Well, you shall not surely die. So God had given Eve and Adam some truth that they were going to die if they eat from that one tree. And the serpent perhaps was trying to give them what he was saying. This is truth disguised as a lie. And then Eve evaluated in her own mind what she was really going to believe was true. Rather than trusting God's word, she decided for herself what was true. So it struck at her basis for knowledge. Secondly, sin struck at the basis for moral standards because it gave a different answer to the question, what is right? The basis for moral standards. God had simply said very clearly, you can eat from any tree in the garden except that one. Now really, if you, if you imagine the Garden of Eden, I don't know how large the garden was, how many acres it covered, how many trees there may really have been, how many trees that were, gave fruit that were good for eating. There could have been thousands of trees that they could have eaten from. But there was just the one. But God said, it's not right for you to eat from that one tree. And so the serpent comes along, and he challenges God, and he says, did he really say? Did he really say you shouldn't eat from that tree? And Eve began to evaluate once again in her own mind, well, God said one thing was right, and now I'm being tempted to think that maybe something else might be okay. So the basis for moral standards. And then thirdly, sin struck at the basis for identity because it gave a different answer to the question, who am I? Adam and Eve should have well known who they were. They were created by God, created for him, to be submissive to him and um, subordinate to him in all things. But rather than trust in that identity, Eve took what the serpent said, and he said, well, God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God. So rather than accepting who they were as men and women subordinate to God, Adam and Eve decided in their own flesh that they weren't satisfied to just be subordinate to God. They really wanted to be like him. So it struck at their identity. And perhaps it's easy for us 
we're very familiar with this, to look at Adam and Eve in this account of the fall and think that, well, would I really have been tricked and tempted and fallen the way that Adam and Eve did? Surely I wouldn't have been so foolish. I think if we look over the course of our lives, we will have seen that we've uh, fallen so many times and made so many foolish decisions, I don't think we would have really done any better. Um, So I think it's important to, when we look at the fall, to very quickly move away from Adam and Eve and look at our own hearts and say that our own hearts are as deceitful as theirs were. Um, We are no less guilty than they are And so next we'll talk about how it is that Adam and Eve's guilt from their sin is transferred all the way through their descendants, through all generations, all the way down to us. Um, The scripture is very clear that it was because of Adam and Eve's sin that's affected all of us so greatly. Before we talk about original sin, the next section in the notes There's a few things that we mean when we say original sin. We say it's original because it was derived from the root, the original root of the human race. That is, it originally came from Adam and Eve. We say that it's present in the life of every individual from the time of their birth. We cannot say that people learn to sin after they're born. Any of us that have children know this to be true because... Do we have to teach our children to do the right thing or do we teach them to do the wrong thing? They're going to do the wrong thing on their own, right? We have to teach them to do the right thing because this original sin was present within them at their birth and within us. And then finally, original sin is the inward root of all the sins that defile mankind. So there's four elements I want us to look at of original sin. And I, I wish that I'd maybe have put in bold which scriptures I was actually going to read. I'm not going to read every one of these there. I don't think our time would allow for it. But let me just tell you which ones I'm going to read so maybe you can make a mark on your notes and maybe be ready to go there. Um, I'm going to do Romans 5.12 for number one. Then for number two, I'll do Ephesians 2.3. 3. Number three, I'll do Romans 7.18. And then number four, I'll do 1 Corinthians 2.14. And then we'll also look at John 6.44, which I didn't put on your notes. And certainly I would encourage you, if you have time later on this week, to look at the rest of these scriptures. But um, I think these will be very representative of uh, the topic. So Romans 5, verse 12, the first element of original sin, which is original guilt. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, Just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. This is original guilt. Sin entered into the life of Adam and Eve. They became guilty of it. And then death entered in because of that. And then death spread to all of us. All of us are guilty as Adam and Eve were. So that's original guilt. And I'm not going to, when I was talking to another one of my, um, another brother here at the church about what I was going to be um, teaching about, I said, you know, Nathan, that some of these things, there's been a teacher that's given like six weeks on just one of these topics. 
I said, well, this is going to be kind of compressed. So there's, there's much more. You could do probably one lesson on each of these elements of original sin. But um, for our purposes, this will not be that in depth. So go to number two, Ephesians 2, 3. It says, among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. The second element here is original pollution, which is to say that our very nature is polluted with sin. Indulging the desires of the flesh, it is our nature that we do this. And this, like I mentioned before, this includes both the absence of righteousness it's not just the absence of righteousness, it's also the presence of a positive evil in man's heart. Original pollution. And now for number three, we'll go back to Romans 7.18. It says, Paul says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the wishing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. Paul said, nothing good dwells within him. So number three, this is total depravity. This means that um, in relation to God, every sinner um, has no spiritual good within himself. Okay. Now this doesn't mean that every one of us is as depraved as we could be which, you know, if you were to imagine the most heinous thing you could, you know, this is maybe a trivial thing, but, you know, every one of us are not axe-wielding murderers seeking to assault children, right? We're not as depraved as we could be, thankfully. Praise God that he has restraining grace that restrains sin. But total depravity really means that um, sin permeates every part of our life, all of our mind and all of our heart. There's no part within us that is not affected by sin. Does that make sense, the distinction there? And then we'll go to number four, to 1 Corinthians 2.14. It said, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Number four here is total inability. Which means that a natural man, a sinful man, he can't even understand the things of God. Because they're appraised by the Spirit. And this one is, I think, particularly important. Um, because it gets to um, several things. For the unbeliever, this means that they lack the ability to do anything that will in itself please God. Because even, um, well, I'll wait on that comment. I'll just say that we um, lack the ability to do anything that will in itself please God. Or secondly, they lack the ability to do anything that will answer the demands of God's law themselves. And finally, I think this one is critical. Um, this doctrine holds that um, the unbeliever lacks the ability to come to God in his own strength. 
And this is where John 6.44 comes in, which we're probably familiar with. Where Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father draws him, and then I will raise him up in the last day. Um, Burkhoff says this, he says, The unredeemed man cannot change his fundamental preference for sin and self to live for God, nor can he even make an approach towards such a change. Because when people are in bondage to sin, I think it's fair to say that they may not even know that they're in bondage to sin. It's all they have known. And by themselves, they wouldn't even seek to break free from that. Only that the Spirit would enter in and draw them away. Now, that said, there's a caveat here at the bottom of your notes that we have to understand that um, it is still possible, of course, for non-believers to still do some good things. That doesn't mean that everything a non-believer does is evil. Um, we, we all know that there's plenty of times when anyone can behave in a commendable way. Um, and we should also respond in gratitude when that happens. And in fact, it is possible for the non-believer to do some good things that in some way meet with God's approval, but um, those actions would still be defective because they are not motivated out of a love for God or motivated by the fact that it's God's law that requires them to do those things. It's still possible. There's maybe three, three things that's still very possible for non-believers to do. They can still perform natural good, which is just the simple things of being good to your children, taking care of the sick or the poor. They can do civil good, serving in their community, thing, th things that are, that are good and commendable. And then finally, they can unbelievers can certainly perform an external religious good. And I think that um, for myself in my own life, this characterized me before I was a believer, and that I was seeing the external religious good that I was doing but I was mistaking that for a regenerated heart. It's very possible for non-believers to do things that they think are good because they seem to be religious, but it certainly may have no bearing on the fact of if they've actually been saved or not. Does that make sense? Um, so when we think about turning the page here to go to sin in the heart, Before we get to uh, Mark chapter 7, I think that, um, let me just read a psalm that I think is, is important in understanding these things. Psalm 24, 3 and 4, says, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, and who may stand in his holy place? It's actually a very important question to ask. Another way that I've heard someone ask this question is, who is going to heaven? Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? The psalmist answers the question and says, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood, and has not sworn deceitfully. And I think immediately we see here that there is a um, very difficult truth to wrap our minds around, that who can stand in God's presence? It's a man that has clean hands and a pure heart. 
Who would that be? Is there any one of us that could raise our hand and say, I have, some of us may think we have clean hands sometimes, but we have not been sinning in certain ways. Can any one of us say that we have a pure heart? No. And this immediately sets up the fact that there's only ever been one man that's walked the earth who's had a clean hand, clean hands, and a pure heart. We know that that's Jesus Christ. And the only way for any one of us to stand in God's presence is if Jesus' clean hands and his pure heart have been credited to our account. We know this is true. This is the gospel. But it's important to understand that our hearts are not pure. So sin originated in the Garden of Eden, and now it resides in our hearts. We know from hearing Dan say it all the time that sin and righteousness are matters of the heart. The top of page two on your notes, from our heart, then sin flows into other parts of us, our intellect, our will, and our affections. There's actually an interesting theological term called the noetic effect of sin. This talks about the fact that sin really affects our brains as well. We literally can't think as clearly as we should otherwise be able to because of the effect that sin has on our minds and our intellect. We know that sin affects our will, the decisions we make, and sin affects our affections, that is, the desires, the things that we long for. I think that Mark chapter 7 is a very good place to go when you talk about sin in the heart. Um, this is a very clear teaching that Jesus gives us um, on the topic. And I think we'll probably come back to this passage either in our second or third week. But um, let's consider what Jesus says here in relation to a man's heart. Mark chapter 7. I'll read verse 17 through 23. And when leaving the multitude, Jesus had entered the house. His disciples questioned him about the parable. And he said to them, Are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach, and is eliminated. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he was saying, That which proceeds out of a man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All of these things proceed from within and defile the man. Jesus lists 13 things here that come out of a defiled heart. Now the word defile is not a word that we use very often. You know, when I come in from mowing the lawn and I've got grass and weeds all over me, I don't say, I'm defiled. I mean, better take a shower. No. But that's really what it is. Defile is to be unclean, right? Be unclean. And interestingly, if you look back probably over the past week or month, however long you want to look back at your own heart um, and think about ways in which you've sinned, you can probably find we'll probably place that sin in one of these categories here that Jesus gives us. 
This is probably not an exhaustive list, but I think it's very broad in its scope. And we can probably see things that we've done fairly recently that fit in this list. Um, and of course, verse 23 gives the result of all of this, the fact that it defiles the man. Our hearts are defiled. Now, interestingly, there's two different kinds of defilement that Scripture talks about. There's the ceremonial defilement, and there's moral defilement. And the ironic thing is, is previously in the chapter, uh, chapter 7, the Pharisees had come to Jesus and asked him a question. And it was about ceremonial defilement. They basically said, why don't your disciples wash their hands according to the traditions of the elders? There are some ceremonial regu regulations that the elders and the Pharisees had established about hand washing. And apparently disciples didn't do this. And it bothered the Pharisees, and they wanted to know from Jesus, well, why are your followers not doing these things? And Jesus takes a question about ceremonial defilement, and he turns it around and talks about moral defilement. Because the Pharisees were concerned about things that were outside their body, thinking that their hands would be, make them unclean. The fact is that what they needed to understand was it was not their hands that were the problem, it was their hearts. And I think that the Pharisees would have more likely expected to see a donkey start flying, flapping his big ears. They would have more expected to see that than to see their hearts as being defiled. They were, I think, the last ones that would have expected anyone to say that they were defiled. And once again, just like we can kind of look at Adam and Eve and say, we probably would have maybe done better than them. We can also look at the Pharisees and say, well, I probably wouldn't have that attitude, would I? But I think if we're honest with ourselves, that we can easily be just as guilty of the Pharisees as looking at perhaps our clean hands at some times and forgetting about our defiled hearts. Um, And interestingly, what Jesus says here, I think, is a foreshadowing of what would happen some years later when Peter was out on a rooftop in Joppa. He sees a vision. Jesus says to him, don't call anything unclean that I've called clean, foreshadowing the fact that the Gentiles would be brought into the church. Once again, nothing outside of a man can make him unclean. It's what's within our own hearts. And once again, to bring us back to the gospel, MacArthur has said, ceremonial defilement could be dealt with in ceremonial ways. You know, Leviticus is full of regulations about if you do this and become unclean, then you do this to make yourself clean. But moral defilement corrupts the soul. Now, did the law prescribe a way for the soul to be cleansed? The law was powerless to do that. The law cannot do that. The Pharisees had no hope if they were looking to the law or traditions to make themselves clean. So once again, we're going to look at this in depth next week. What I have to say once again is that um, the solution for a defiled heart, for a corrupted soul, is not in law keeping, but it's in Christ. Um, we need him to cleanse our hands and our hearts.
So we should also talk about the punishment of sin. Let's turn back to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus 20, verse 5. God's giving the Ten Commandments, and he says, um, You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me. There it is again, hatred of God. Him saying that he will visit the iniquity of fathers generationally. And then if you flip over to chapter 34, he says something in a similar way. Chapter 34, verse 7. He says, Who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives sin, iniquity, and trans transgression, yet... He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Once again, visiting the iniquity of fathers and the children and on the grandchildren to the third and the fourth generation. These two verses and others like it are God going on record saying that sin will be punished. There is no escaping it. Sin will be punished. The guilty will not go unpunished. And we should probably make two distinctions about the kinds of punishment that God has for sin. First of all, and this we're, we're all very familiar with the first type, and that's what I would call, or what, not I, theologians through many years have called the natural penalty of sin. Number one, they're under two types. This is really what you would think of as like the consequences as a result of your sin. Um, we all know that um, when we do foolish things, we're probably going to have consequences sooner or later. When we choose to sin, we will um, have consequences ourselves and perhaps have consequences that extend to other people around us, right? Um, let me just go. You don't have to turn here. You can. I'm just going to go to Job to read briefly here. Job 4, verse 8. It says, according to what I have seen, those that plow iniquity and those who sow trouble harvest it. This is a basic principle of life. We know this is true. When we sin, there's going to be consequences sooner or later. This is the natural penalty of sin. Um, and then number two is what could be called the positive penalty of sin. And not positive in the sense of pleasant, but um, positive in the sense that God brings this penalty about to exact divine justice on those who transgress his law. This is the positive penalty of sin. And I will read Psalm 11.6. Where it says, Upon the wicked, he, that's God, will rain snares, fire and brimstone, and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. This is the kind of penalty of sin that Scripture actually speaks the most about. Um, this positive penalty that God enacts against people that transgress his law. 
but we have to be very careful when we talk about this because there's a couple of ways that we can go astray. Um, and the first thing that I need to point out is that um, certainly for believers, we are not punished for our sin. Right? We know because of the gospel that it's Jesus that was punished for our sin in our place. And we have to be sure for those that are in Christ to make the distinction between God punishing sin and God disciplining us as his children. Um, none of us should think that when even, and we'll get to this in a little bit, none of us should think that when something um, happens to us that causes us pain, suffering, or loss, it's not happening to us because we're being punished for sin. Amen. That's right. And then for um, the non-believer, one that perhaps for his entire life never repents and is never saved, um, I believe we also have to hold to the fact that God doesn't punish them for their sin in this life either. But punishment for the non-believer, because if it wasn't taken, um, if it wasn't taken by Christ in their place on the cross, then their punishment for sin is exacted in eternity in hell, damnation. So we have to be careful that we're making the distinction as believers between punishment and discipline. And I think that it becomes more clear when we understand that God's punishment of sin has all to do with his justice, making sure that those that have transgressed his law are paying the price for that. But as believers, when we talk about God's discipline, that has nothing to do with justice. That has to do with God's love and his redemptive in nature conform us more into the image of his son. Um, we'll talk a bit about that um, in a few moments, but let's talk first about the, the purpose for this punishment. Um, why is it that God has to punish sin in this way? And I may have said it already, but the purpose of punishment is simply this, and I would say that this is, you know, if there really is only this one purpose. There's a secondary purpose, but this is really it. It's to vindicate divine righteousness or justice. That's why he has to punish sin, because he is a just God. To vindicate divine righteousness or justice. Because God stands behind his law. He's given the law, and he's going to stand behind it. And his holiness necessarily result, um, reacts against sin and his reaction manifests itself in the punishment of sin. Now, I think a far lesser important purpose of him punishing sin is that to a degree, the, th the threatenings or the specter of future punishment of sin, that can serve as a deterrent towards, for us on earth. It can serve as a deterrent from sin, as a warning um, against sin. But I think that's far, far um, lesser of importance than the fact that God punishes sin simply because he is just and he's holy. So let's look at what is the real penalty. What does this really look like for each of us um, or mankind in general? Well, if we were to go back and think about Adam and Eve again, um, when you look at number one, the first penalty of sin is spiritual death. Because when God told them, don't eat of this tree, he said, for in that day you shall surely die. 
Now, the day that they ate the fruit, they didn't physically die that day, did they? Well, what, what part of them died? Their spirit or their heart, right. Spiritual death occurred for Adam and Eve that day, and ever since then, every one of us has been, even at birth, dead on arrival, so to speak, in our spirit and our hearts. Spiritual death is the first penalty for sin. And number two, which is comes back to what we spoke about just a moment ago, the second penalty of sin that we experience, it is the sufferings of life. Simply because we live in a world that has fallen and we live amongst sinners, we will necessarily um, endure things that um, if we were not a sinful race, maybe we wouldn't, um, I don't think. But um, once sin entered the world, so did pain, grief, suffering, and loss. Now, some of us know this to a far greater degree than others do. We know that certain people experience far more pain and loss and suffering than others do. Um, but again, certainly we have to understand as believers that even for someone that is experiencing those things, it's not because they're being punished for sin. It's a result of the fact that mankind in general is sinful. Um, and then you also have to think about the fact that there are um, things that God does that can affect lots of people all at one time. Think about natural disasters, earthquakes and famines and floods and hurricanes. Um, in a sense, these are the penalty of sin. They, um, they exist because this is a sinful world, but we have to be careful that we don't look at those things and think that God is judging that particular group of people that endured the hurricane or the flood or the drought or the car wreck or whatever it may have been. Um, and turn to Luke 13. This, is, I think, is, is important in this regard. Luke 13. Luke 13, 1 through 5. Now on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him, that's Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you all will likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So a question here once again was put to Jesus about something bad that had happened to some Galileans. And Jesus says, well, it wasn't because they were particularly sinful. And he brought up another example of a tower that fell down on people and killed people. Clearly, a tower falling on someone was not a result of the person that it fell on. It was would seem to be an accident, right? And it wasn't that those people that were killed were any sinful than anyone else in Jerusalem. But Jesus said, really, when you look at these situations of when tragedy befalls people, don't think about them. You need to think about yourself. 
and that unless you repent, you would also perish. And then I would also briefly read John chapter 9, verse 1 and 2. This was the man blind from birth. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. His disciples were assuming that his blindness must be a punishment for somebody's sin, himself or his parents. Jesus says, that's not it at all. It was not that he sinned or his parents. And this is a remarkable thing to think that, um, and we can't gloss over the fact that this was a man that was blind from birth. I think all of us in this room have vision. I don't think any of us are blind. So we shouldn't trivialize what it is to be blind because we probably don't know what it's like to raise a child that's blind or to be blind ourselves. And yet God still saw fit to cause this child to be born blind, not because of any sin at all, but because God had a greater purpose for God's, um, the works of God might be displayed in him. When we talk about the penalty for sin being the sufferings of this life, we have to be careful that we're not seeing it as um, whoever may be suffering is being punished for that sin. Does that make sense? In fact, I may have a another quote here that may be helpful if you'll when you're thinking about the sufferings of life. Um, says, man is in a state of dissolution which often carries with it the most poignant sufferings. Not only that, but with and on account of man, the whole creation was made subject to vanity and the bondage of corruption. So sin's effect has been so pervasive in all of mankind that suffering is necessarily part of our human experience. Thirdly, the third penalty of sin is physical death. We know that physical death entered in when sin entered the world. Our bodies age, they waste away, they decay, and one day they'll die. Um, for the unbeliever, this is a very terrifying thing. You know, death is the enemy. Death is... Um, thing to be feared most of all for the unbeliever, but thankfully, and perhaps this is you know not the most encouraging portion of our lesson, but um, we should take encouragement um, that for us as believers, death has lost its sting, and that it will not have the victory over us. And then, number four, eternal death is the final penalty of sin, Revelation chapter 20. 
maybe this is the low point. I think I'm not there yet. Um, Revelation chapter 20, 11 through 15. John writes, And I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, in whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged, and the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. And death and Hades were thrown at the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now understanding that where we've come from, defining sin in relation to God's law, had all to do with the fact that God was a holy lawgiver. He gave a law. And for those that throughout their lives and their acts, their attitudes, and their nature continually are hating God and opposition to him, despite what we'll see next week is all the means of grace that God even gives to unbelievers throughout their own lives, for those at the time of their physical death are not found, found in Christ, in fact, if they're still spiritually dead, for them, this is their destination, eternal separation from God in the lake of fire. And that's a serious thing that we shouldn't, um, I don't think we think about this a whole lot. Um, I probably certainly don't. Um, but this is ultimately the result of sin in the world that has caused um, very dire consequences um, uh, both in this life and it can cause dire consequences in the life to come. Um, but again, lest we all have long faces as we walk out of here, we know that um, God demonstrated his own love for us and we were still sinners. Christ died for us. Is that right? Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, you are holy and you are a just God. And I thank you for that, that you are just and you are not capricious. And you do things according to your will, that you would be glorified. Would help us to consider um, the state of our hearts, perhaps if there's some in the room, um, that realize that they have defiled, unclean hearts, Father. Draw them to yourself, Lord. Give them grace that they might see. There's no other name under heaven given to men by which they may be saved other than Jesus Christ. Lord, strengthen each of us to um, consider these things, um, perhaps to be fearful in the way that we um, behave ourselves so that we might um, be pleasing to you in all that we do. We thank you for your son, Jesus, most of all. It's in his name we pray.